All right, we ready? Welcome, thanks for coming today. Uh, the handouts are on the table in the back. And we're today, the question we're asking, how should Christians think about the election crisis? We dealt with the racial crisis. We'll deal with the COVID crisis next week. These are biggies and they're loaded. And I'm not trying to stir any of that up per se. The reality is, is that these are things that we just want to debrief. We just want to talk about. We just want to reflect on that. Maybe even just lament or mourn. And that, that's part of what this is. Like, this, this isn't like, well, here's the easy answer. All these other people are goofballs. I mean, it's not quite that clear. Like, regarding all of these issues, there actually can be, and you may even want to argue should be, some level of disagreement even among Christians. Like, that, that actually isn't outside the box. There should be some level of disagreement when there's this much complexity to this many things in this country and this culture. There's going to be ways that we define things differently that will lead us toward different conclusions, and that, that really is understandable. So, so part of it is for us to say, okay, Lord, how do we process this as individuals, and then ultimately collectively as the church, how do, how do we respond to this? Where should our hearts be? How can we seek unity when there are differences or disagreements, even things that to individuals or to all of us are considered quite important. We've got to find a way to do that. Otherwise, we just take all that spiritual language in Scripture, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and we just kind of like, that's great for T-shirts, but there really isn't the one, right? Not if you disagree with me on such and such or so and so. Oh, there is. There's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, there's one church, and that's got to dictate not only how we talk about this, but honestly how we think about it. So that's the challenge that we face, right? When you raise these kind of questions, how should Christians think about the racial crisis? How should Christians think about the election crisis? How should Christians think about the COVID crisis? Well, these are biggies. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in and have some talk and discussion together. Let's pray. Father, be with us as we try to reflect on your word and your truth. Thank you for your goodness to us. Minister to us this morning uh, as we, as brothers and sisters, talk about things that our country is split or divided over, that the church has got to find common ground in. And help us to pursue that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Big category that I've given for this particular Growth Hour class, right? This is an eight-week class, and we're covering different questions. The big category, or the big question is, how do we think biblically about 2020? But one of the primary categories, if not the primary category, is this understanding of third world culture. That, that is important. Literally, one of my sons, I was with driving yesterday morning, and he's, he says this to me. He goes, Man, Dad, I wish you could debate my AP world history teacher. And I go, why is that? He goes, well, I think you're both pretty smart guys, and you would completely disagree with each other. Well, well again, explain. And he starts talking about clearly third world culture approach to whatever, gay marriage, male-female, political things, derogatory statements about Christianity. 
And he made an interesting comment, you know, as we're talking about this, he goes, I'm actually kind of glad that I've gotten exposed to this while I live at home. He's like, because I kind of feel like I, I, I'm going to hear this at some point, right? I'm, at some point, I'm going to hear somebody say something negative about Jesus or the Jesus I believe in. At some point, I'm going to hear somebody say something negative about what just generally I would have just assumed is this is kind of the way it is. And I'm kind of glad that we can talk about it. And so I gave him the category of third world culture. I said, well, it's, he goes, it's so, I, this is why I, I started out by saying, because I mean, like, we're talking about the bears. We're, ta- I mean, we're talking about all these other things. I said, well, at some point, I got to talk to you about what a third world culture is. He's like, not some point. I need it now. And so I, we spent, we had 20 minutes together in a car, and I'm explaining third world culture to my 14-year-old. And I talk about a first world culture, second world culture, and third world culture. And by the time we got to third world culture, like, that is my teacher. That's totally my teacher. And we just begin to think through then, okay, what's that look like if we, if we are ultimately based on God's word, we, we, we have to live under the rubric of a second world culture, but we're engaging with people, authorities over us, a teacher that's grading our essays, whatever it may be in a third world culture, what's that look like? And so that's the category that I've wanted, not only my 14 year old son to have some knowledge of as he's a freshman at Hanega High School, but honestly, I think that's a really fruitful category for us as Christians to think about the world. If we really are missionaries serving in this world, we should probably know the cultural context. And if we think that, if we think that they're already going to assume, well, obviously I'm sinful. I just need to figure out which redemption I need. <laughs> or, or obviously these institutions are traditional and natural. Of course, marriage is between a man and a woman. Of course, my body has some kind of a say what my gender is. Like that just seems nonsensical to think otherwise. If that's, which would be easy for us to think, especially if all we've been catechized in, in church or in our subcultures elsewhere is a second world culture, we're going to have a really hard time even understanding what a third world culture person is saying. But one of the other things that this has been important to say is if the big category of this class is, hey, we're in a third world culture, And if you're wondering why there's a fracturing, not even just in our country, but in evangelicalism, here's why. There's different approaches to how a second world culture engages with a third world culture. And this is where churches can literally and understandably just disagree. Like some are going to be like, we need to be converting them to a second world culture. Or we need to be disengaging from them and create our own little culture. And others are like, this is just another manifestation of sin in the world. We want to be able to connect with them. Elders are reading a book by Tim Keller that I think helpfully talks about these kind of three language, three C's he gives. We want to be able to connect with them. You're going to have a hard time connecting if you're just beating them up all the time. You're going to have a hard time connecting if you can't even translate what they're saying. We don't just want to connect, though. We also want to confront, but we got to do that by knowing what their ultimate story is. Like, what is it that they think is their salvation? What is it that they think gives them meaning and essence? And what would we say that from God's word is actually how that happens? It doesn't happen like they think. Like, we know how it works. We know they're confused. We don't revel in that. Ha ha, you idiots. We, we have mercy we weep, we're brokenhearted, that's why. We see brokenness and it breaks our hearts. And listen, we do that all the time physically. Like we physically see that. A little boy 
looks up to my oldest son, this little boy, can never, will never be able to play high school football. He just physically won't be able to do that. His legs don't work. But boy, can you just imagine being a little five, six-year-old boy wanting to play football? And he, he just, he, he, and so a couple games ago, my oldest son came up to him full in pads. He could have put him right in a thigh pad. He looked so big next to this little kid and just knelt down over the fence, put his hand on him, right? We understand that sadness when there's something broken. But you understand that when you see somebody who cannot walk, man, that'd be hard. You understand that when you see somebody who can't see, just imagine right now, boop, your eyes are gone, you cannot see. How are you going to find your car? So what if that's true with their worldview? Do we just mock them? Win an argument? No, they can't see. Scripture even says it more than just a cultural thing. It's a spiritual thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? It's lowercase g. It's Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they're unable to see the glory of the gospel. So for them, it's a different gospel. So Satan is so good, he doesn't even want them to think that they need salvation. Let me see the problem. That's like a person having cancer and never knowing about it. Why would they get treatment? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, you getting chemotherapy tomorrow? You'd be like, what? No, I'm not getting chemotherapy tomorrow. Why would I need chemotherapy tomorrow? What if you had cancer? Wouldn't you want to treat it? So just, just, just hear how this third world culture thing is itself teaching us about a kind of posture that we need to have. But one of the biggest ramifications, this is point number one this morning, one of the biggest ramifications of a third world culture is this. In a third world culture, religion or transcendence, that's above, is replaced by politics, imminence. If it's not God's kingdom, like if they're not living for the glory of the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God, guess what they will seek first? The kingdoms of humanity. And that's just, that's just the way it is. You were made to be seeking the king. You were made to be living in a kingdom. And if the transcendent kingdom is blinded from your eyes, you will make an earthly kingdom transcend. That's just the way you're wired. So that's just us knowing everybody's wanting to herald a king. Everybody wants to herald a messiah. And if it's not the king and the Messiah, they will fabricate one who is not worthy. So now you wonder why our political discourse, even and sadly in the church, gets amped up as much as it does. And sadly, why third world culture values or emphases flow right through our doors, right across the lobby, right into this room. And brothers and sisters in Christ who would sign on the dotted line of one faith, one Lord, one baptism, will not understand each other if it's not one political candidate or one political party. And notice it doesn't say that. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one political party. Doesn't say that. If it did, that political party would not be of this nation. It would be the kingdom of God. So let me ask you, there's just a set of questions you can respond to. To, to, to any of them, but let, let's just for a few minutes discuss this. Rooted in number one, how does this, right, this 
politics replaces religion, how does this explain what happened in the 2020 presidential election? How does this explain an increase in fears, conspiracies, and protest in this last election? And how does this maybe even explain political discourse, political pundits, and political advertisements? You, you tell me. Sh share with us. How does this number one point, religion is replaced by politics, explain some of what we saw in this last election cycle? What's that? Yeah, I heard divide. I didn't hear the first thing you said, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, a huge, huge divide. Huge. Literally, some people, and I don't know if they're accurate. It might be they might be too close to tell, but some have argued that it's it's literally getting close. There's like language of two Americas talk happening all the time now. The same kind of stuff you had pre-Civil War, right? So we literally are having that kind of rhetoric. Whether that's just rhetoric. And not substance, it's hard to know, but those are the kind of things you're hearing. So it's hugely divisive because it's, it's like faith. And, and what, what, what causes some of the most wars throughout church history? Uh, religion does. I mean, religion causes wars throughout the world. And so the reality is, if this is the level of religion, get ready for a war. Other thoughts, other reflections on this last cycle? Yeah. Have you, yeah, yeah. Well, and, that, and it's a great example, the, the you know, the baker and the, the, the cake and, and untraditional marriage kind of thing is a great example of second versus third world. I mean, it's just what, there it is. You just totally see that conflict. How, how has this, well, yeah, it is, it is. How, how has this, how has this, seeped into the church. And I'm not necessarily saying Hope Evangelical Free Church, but just in general, how has this kind of divide and the prominence maybe even of politics seeped into churches? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 com the comment was is that one, one of the things is that even the word evangelical has been co-opted so that while one-third, about 35% of Americans would self-identify as evangelical, only 25% of Americans actually are connected to anything close to an evangelical denomination, and only 6% of Americans actually hold evangelical doctrine. That's, that's, a, that, that's kind of a big difference. So the fact is that, hope, what does Hope Evangelical Free Church mean if MSNBC heard the name? To them it would mean Republican. To us, it means Jesus Christ. It means missionaries in a broken and fallen world were an embassy of the kingdom. But probably MSNBC would hear that as some kind of, well, that's political identification. And, and, and the question is, are they wrong? Is there, are these, are truly gospel-driven, biblical-based churches reflecting the exact same statistics and percentages that the culture would say we are, or are there a massive diversity of opinions on various things? Because ultimately our identity was never in any one particular politic because we're kingdom citizens first, and that there could be a variety of views. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Val says that lack of diversity or of 
freedom for opinion, maybe you could say, without putting words in your mouth, has actually pushed away many of our younger generation. Again, it's another thing to think about. Why, why would there be such a divide between generations? Like, in what other area would there be this kind of divide? I, you know what I mean? Like, what, what other thing would call... Cause such a divide. Like I, I, I totally got. I didn't even know what TikTok was, to be honest with you. And I, st- I said what I thought it was, and my kids have teased me f- without ceasing for a week. They're like, "What's TikTok, Dad?" <laughs> like nonstop, TikTok, 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 TikTok. I mean, like, go to your rooms. The big one, you stay there. I can't move you anymore. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, so obviously there's like a there's like a technological divide, and and but but I'm saying like. Where else is that, like, is it like all of a sudden the younger generation growing up fishing hates the outdoors all of a sudden? These radical young children that raise in a devout Packer home and they start watching the Patriots? I mean, what you actually see is those things pass down beautifully. Why is that? Why do those things pass down? Favorite foods, favorite restaurants, favorite traditions. But the moment you come to this, there's a huge divide. Why? I mean, those are, those are hard questions to answer. Look at that second point. And this, this, is, this is me summarizing where I, where I think Scripture would take this. And it actually hits a little bit if you were in for a service. One of the things that the topic of what the church is hits on. According to Scripture, the primary nation and citizenship of the Christian is the kingdom of God. Now, that, that's just hard to fathom because we have not or rarely pledge allegiance to that nation. But if you were to ask God, okay, God, which nation are you wanting me to be mostly devoted to? He would say the eternal one, that's the kingdom of God. I remember we watched the Olympics, was it 04, I guess? Olympics in Scotland, and we were in, we were in Dean's Court dormitory. I was the assistant warden. It sounds like I'm a prison guard. And we were in this common room where they had one TV, and we were, and it was interesting because I had never seen so many other nations represented on a TV during the Olympics. First of all, because America has like 7 million Olympic athletes, number one, and we're in every event. And, and it's just obviously when you're in America, whose team are you watching? You're watching Americans. So imagine watching it in Great Britain. You get a little bit of America, but you're not getting all the stories. You're getting the stories about mainly the Brits. So there I'd be with all these Brits. There'd be a few Germans. This guy from France annoyed me like crazy, but he could root for whoever I want to. I got a South African sitting behind me. You've got, I got two Jamaicans, and I can't remember where this one guy was. Was it Sweden or Denmark? I don't even know. But we're in this room, and I would see they'd be talking about the Brit, and then they'd kind of be screwed by, and then there, there'd be the American. And inside, mm, I'm pumped. Let's go American. I, can't, I don't want to be rude. But I was not like, hey, win in Rome. No, no, no. America, let's go, right? And so I'd be inside cheering because that's my team. That's totally my team. And it was fun. And it was interesting to do so, though, in a room where besides my wife and maybe three other students, we were the only Americans. And it was also interesting because the TV show did not highlight any of them. A couple of them are just remarkable athletes, and they would talk about them, of course. But most of the time, you're hearing about some, so-and-so from London or so-and-so from Wales or so-and-so from the Highlands of Scotland. 
who got into this through some whatever, and you're just hearing their interesting stories. But you're also watching it as kind of like a bit of a United Nations, where the guy from France, who kept telling me how good France was, I don't think they won one event that I watched with this guy, but he kept telling me how dominant France was going to be. Okay, buddy, just sit down, would you? But I'm watching with all of these nations, it tempers you a little bit. It just does. Because I would see the look on the faces when this, especially in track and field it would seem, when I would see some of these Americans dominate and there's this Scottish guy who I just heard a story about, right, with his mom such and such, and there's three people in the room that knew him personally. You just cheered a little differently, even though in my heart, when it goes off, I wanted to see the red, white, and blue go fast. But I just, it tempered it because I was in a larger context. So what does that mean when you put our nation in its larger context? So the questions I ask, and then let's talk about it for a minute. But again, some kind of questions for thought. How should this truth, right, that the primary nation and citizenship of the Christian in Scripture is the kingdom of God, how should this guide the Christian's political thoughts and actions? By the way, I'm not saying there's an easy answer to this. In fact, if anything, it's completely divided. Like Christians throughout the centuries have not known how to apply this. So please don't think like there's a real easy answer and your comments are going to be, no, no, no. Welcome to the complexity. Because guess what? By instinct, we love, we love our country. God wired us that way. So then you have to literally do something above and beyond to try to say, this is temporary. This is not eternal. This is not my ultimate home. Think of, think of the analogy like this. In heaven, there is no such thing as marriage. That just sounds weird. That just sounds strange. Are you saying I won't have a unique relationship to my wife that, Lord willing, for 50 years I did? That's just, I can't even fathom. The Mormons totally disbelieve that. And they literally, for those who are super holy and sacred, eternalize marriage between a man and a woman. But in Scripture, Jesus says this specifically, there will be no marriage in heaven. And he also says, or to correct the point, if there is a marriage, it's between Christ and his church. That's the metaphor Jesus uses. But that's just hard for me to think about. Because I'll be honest with you, I mean, I'm going to want to see my mom. Probably want to check in my grandma, love to see my daughter, any granddaughters, but I'm going to want to see my wife. And for me to think that there wouldn't be something special is hard for my mind to even fathom. I just can't fathom that because earthly, I haven't known that, yet I trust Jesus' words. Like I trust his, I believe his words. So what does that look like for my nation? Because, man, when the, and the, it's not like because the French guy was here, I was rooting for France. I had no affection for France whatsoever, especially after sitting next to this guy. I was almost rooting against them with my flesh. May France lose. To be fair, the Jamaican made me want to root a little harder, and a couple of the Scots. I'm in Scotland. I saw the national pride of all these Scots. Yet I also saw when I would walk into my St. Andrew's Baptist Church that Ian and Millie McClellan would come up and congratulate me on the strength of our nation in the Olympics. So what's that mean then for me to be told that the country that I love 
that the country that my own family has died for to protect and preserve. I took my mom to her parents' gravesite, and I stood over Floyd R. Munson, U.S. Army. I stood over that, and I read that on his, on his tombstone. That's my great-grandpa. And he served in the U.S. Army in World War I. I'm proud of that. My grandpa was a paratrooper. And right when he was literally on the flight to jump off for the first time, the war ended. His joke was, they saw me coming. <laughs> he only did paratrooper because he got double the pay. But I'd stand next to my grandpa when he, you would hear the national anthem in a game, he'd ball like a baby. Like I, what? That catechizes you. That teaches you, doesn't it? People died for things, common grace things, but they died for them. They matter. Now, then Jesus tells me, seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, help me know what to do with that. And especially in a third world culture, which has been around for, let's say, 70 years, so most of our lives, where this is all good and true, that I should love my country, and it's been given steroids because religion and transcendence has been muted and imminence of politics and nation have taken its place. Now it's even harder for me to separate it. Because I don't want, I stand over Floyd R. Munson's tombstone and I respect what he gave up for this country. And I see our soldiers and, our, and, and those serving the military even now and I respect what they do. That is life-changing sacrifice for the people in this land. Then I go to Scotland and I sit next to a woman who lost four sons in World War II. And they died fighting for their country. I mean, I'm sure they didn't have any negative thoughts about America, but they were fighting for Scotland. What about those Russian soldiers? Who are they fighting for, right or wrong? How about those German soldiers? Who were they fighting for? I, six generations ago, my family was in German, Germany. So questions, how should this, the prominence of the kingdom of God in Scripture, how should this guide the Christian's political thoughts and actions? How should the Christian show allegiance to the kingdom of God? And how should a Christian live as a dual citizen? What do you think? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the comment was that we, it should break us, and I'm summarizing, but maybe even motivate us when we see the things that we know are true being stepped on and crushed in our own country. It should cause some kind of response. Part, part of my reflection on that is I wonder if the dual citizenship is actually helpful there because it allows us to know that Ultimately, we are not putting all our body weight just on this nation. So that's, that's where I get worried, and this has happened from the beginning of time, when apocalyptic-type language is used to talk about basically now every new election. I worry about that because that is immediately being infused with that loss of transcendence in religion to a political transcendence, it makes me nervous. And I, would, and, I, and I understand if a third world culture person is doing it, 
But I wonder if, as a safety, we simply know that ultimately, number one, the gates of hell cannot stand against the church, and the kingdom of God is already blossoming. So that I literally, like citizens of nations before us, I literally could see our nation collapsing, which you could argue is happening now. And yet you feel like your feet are not on sifting sand, but on the rock, right? I mean, so there, there's a sense where it actually can give a, a peace that passes all understanding because of the dual citizenship nature of the believer. Yeah, the, when, you think, when you think of all the nations gathered together, again, it, like me watching the Olympics in the lounge at Dean's Court in St. Andrews in 04, it mutes a little bit. It, it didn't remove that I, I was, these weren't all Christians, but just around my, the, the community in which I was in. Now, now imagine if they're believers. Well, certainly, yeah, and, and maybe reflect, you know, it's, it's hard to know. You know, because they don't have to be binaries, right, or bad or good. It literally is just this duality that I am an American citizen. Though, had, had my great, 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 whatever grandfather, who's interestingly, same name as my oldest son, Jacob Edward Clink, not come over to Buffalo, New York six generations ago, I'd be speaking way better German and had a way easier PhD program of learning German than I did as born and raised in Rockford, Illinois, right? And I, or I could have been born in Sweden. And I could still be making the kingdom great again as a devout Swede. Or again, or, or just the fact that I worship for three years in a Scottish church makes me love those people because those are my brothers and sisters. And they, are, they literally could walk in here and you would love their accents and you would really, really prefer their tea and you'd ask them to bring the scones, and they would sit here, and would you feel comfortable singing God Bless America on July 4th in church and not sing God Bless Scotland? If 50 of our Scottish brothers and sisters were sitting over here, I mean, there's nothing against blessing America, but can my country be involved? Look, look at the test case, number three. This is interesting. Have you heard of the Barman Declaration? Of 1934, it's interesting in relation to what Steve brought up from 1933. In the struggle against the Nazi regime, a group of church leaders in Germany wrote the Barman Declaration in May of 1934 to help Christians withstand the challenges of the Nazi party and its influence in many German churches. In the form of six theses, now it does not say theses, You'll get the junior high giggles out, and a thesis is an argument or a statement, six propositions. In the form of six theses, the Barman Declaration places a biblical wedge between the church and the state, rejecting the subordination of the church to the state. That's an important phrase. Now, these were pastors, theologians, who guess what? They loved Germany. They weren't like, we really hate our country. They loved Germany, and they loved it so much that they wanted to make sure that Christians knew how to love it appropriately. Modeling the Declaration's format, Miroslav Wolf, theologian, 
offers us his own thesis for the church that helps keep a wedge between the kingdoms of God and humanity. This is coming from his book, Exclusion and Embrace. But, but I, so I'm quoting him. I'm not, I didn't give all six of the Barman Declaration theses. I just, I'm quoting like a, a summary of a guy who gives a different version. This is what Wolf says. All the churches of Jesus Christ, scattered in diverse culture. This is beautiful, by the way. Just listen, this picture, picture the sprinkling of God's kingdom across the nations, right? In the highlands of Scotland, in the deep jungles of Brazil where Ed served, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia where Danny would, 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 would work in, all across the fields of Kansas, in the busy city of LA and Los Angeles, in central London, in the biggest, biggest buildings in Jakarta, Indonesia, literally in King Jong-un's own palace in North Korea, silently without being noticed. Huddles of house churches in Beijing. Now read this. All the churches of Jesus Christ, scattered in diverse cultures, have been redeemed for God by the blood of the Lamb to form one multicultural community of faith. The blood that binds them as brothers and sisters is more precious. These are bold words, Christians. Is more precious than the blood, the language, the customs, political allegiances, or economic interests that may separate them. We reject the false doctrine as though a church should place allegiance to the culture it inhabits and the nation to which it belongs, above the commitment to brothers and sisters from other cultures and nations, servants of the one Jesus Christ, their common Lord, and members of God's new community. What, what do you see when you hear this? Oh, that's helpful. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a reality that we can, we can feel and even appreciate that difference in theory, but then even in practice, in our own midst, this doesn't take priority. To Val's point, how many of our younger generation would feel dissonance with their parents and grandparents if this is the means by which we spoke and talked about those with whom we disagreed? Or even how we prioritized legitimate disagreements that have implications. They do. Other, other reflections on this thesis by Miroslav Volf. Just the name Volf is kind of cool anyway, but Miroslav. If I have another child, that's his name. Miroslav Klink. And that's a, that's, a, that's a much bolder application of, of these kind of principles than maybe you know, several of us or many of us have, have gone to yeah, but, it, but, it, but it's not outside the bounds of what something like the Barman Declaration was intending to do in regard to its citizens in the Nazi regime. Look, look at the last point, because our time's near an end. The, the election crisis in our country is a manifestation of a third world culture, and the same crisis in the church is a manifestation of the fracturing evangelicalism. And then I, then I ask this question, does allegiance to the kingdom of God hinder or reject a love and support of country? 
I think the, I think the clear answer is absolutely not. But, but look at two different terms. I just gave you the Webster's definition between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is devoted love, support, and defense of one's country or national loyalty. But look at how nationalism is defined. Excessive patriotism. That's the first phrase. The policy or doctrine of asserting the interests of one's own nation viewed as separate. That's, I think that word separate is interesting. Viewed as separate from the interests of other nations or the common interests of all nations. Now again, don't, don't be, the, the, the lens on that could actually read what anything else would be merely socialism. Or kind of one world government. But I think that word separate means, well, not separate, but there's, there, there, there can clearly be a prioritization without separation. And maybe that's the distinction between patriotism and nationalism. I have three kids that I clearly devote my primary care for. That does not mean, though, that I will do so in a way that was, is careless or clueless about other people. It doesn't mean that I don't share of resources, time, and energy, and skills for other kids who are not my own. It doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean that anything I do with my kids is irrespective or uncon I'm unconcerned about any impact on other people. If I want to blare the music at three in the morning in my, out my windows, so be it. It's fun for me and my kids. No, I would say, no, no, people... Be Respect the community. I mean, it's a silly example, but I'm just saying you would think about those things because it's not fully separate. It's just those are your kids. But there's other kids. You maybe haven't been assigned to be their mom and dad, but you're assigned to love neighbor. So how do you do that nationally? You're assigned to be a citizen, an earthly citizen of this common grace nation, but now how do you love neighbor as a nation? Well, this debate is never going to be solved. But I find that interesting. Patriotism just sounds like the kind of love you might have for your kids. The kind of focused care that you would give to them as you should responsibly. Nationalism, you're not even thinking about other families, other kids? You're acting in ways that disregarding that? The application questions I ask, and then we'll close. How can Christians prepare for the 2022 election? It's coming. And maybe even bigger would be 2024. Right? It won't be long now. How do we prepare? Is there anything we learned? Let me ask that as we close. How can we prepare for the next election cycle, especially if you have some of the same candidates deciding to run again with the same rhetoric and slander and apocalyptic, apocalyptic politicking, how can the church respond, if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you believe it could be better and different, how can the church respond differently the next election cycle? What would you say? Now, pray. Engage with other people and listen to them more than you talk. That's the advice, that, that's the advice that Melody gives. Others, 
Any other reflections on how we could do this well? Yeah. Yeah. What happens, D, if a brother and a sister disagrees with some of the principles that you would embrace? And I'm not asking this, but just in general for Christians, I'm not asking this of you. But what if there'd be brothers and sisters that would not think a particular candidate fits exactly what they think is good and true for our state, for example? I mean, is it possible that it wouldn't be uniform? That there'd, there'd be different issues that people would hold different things to. How do we even engage in that? I mean, I think these are really hard issues. And to be honest with you, it's gotten worse the last several generations. It's gotten more polemical and more divided. I don't know the easiest way to fix that. All I know is I think we have to try. I think we do. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's not shoot anybody. No shooting. No shooting. All right, last application questions, but, but, question, but I'm, I'm leaving it for you. How can Christians make the kingdom great again? How can you do that with your, in your families, with your children and your grandchildren? How can you, how can we in the church do that? Seek first the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. Not seek once in a while or every so often. Oh yeah, kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Maybe during election cycle we should just be memorizing that verse. Jack, were you going to say one last thing? I mean, I, I think in closing, I think it's fair to say, echoing what you were saying, I think it's fair to say that if the, death, the, the doctrine of the death of Christ changes how we look at our sin in our lives, if the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ changes how we look at death and eternal life, then I would think that the doctrine of the king and the kingdom of God should make a difference in how we look at politics and our political lives and our national lives. And I think if it's happening in the spiritual things or the physical things like our death, but it's not happening in the political realm, then we are not letting God's word be a prophetic voice into our souls. And until, as a collective whole, the church is willing to do that. Again, that isn't an alignment with any particular position. It actually is a disalignment with one particular nation just enough so that there's room for the primary allegiance to be the kingdom of God. Until there's enough of a wedge that the kingdom of God keeps putting in between me and our earthly nation, then my bent, the way God made me and you to be big picture transcendence, will put that into our political nation. And the church has to have enough of a wedge a kingdom of God declaration of 2022 where we can say, seek first the kingdom of God. And then after that, full loaded with principles and convictions, vote for what we believe is right and true for the best of our nation and our state and our region. Let me pray and close. Father, thanks for your word that we talked about thematically today. Thanks for my brothers and sisters with great insight and wisdom and even 
with different perspectives sitting here. Help us as we fellowship now as the body of Christ and have coffee and donuts and encourage one another, unified with one bloodline through Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Father, help us to seek first the kingdom of God. And Lord, we need your help in that. So may your spirit minister to your church in this country and others so that we would be seeking your kingdom first. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.